We had a choice to make, whether it was either with National or Labour, for a modified status quo or for change. That's why, in the end, we chose a coalition government of New Zealand First with the New Zealand Labour Party. Is it on? Look, I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr Putin. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. No, wait, it, it is on? Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I don't like it. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Well, may we say God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor-General. Hello and welcome to episode 27 of BuzzFeed, Australia's political podcast, Is It On? We are recording this on the morning of Friday, the 20th of October. My name is Alice Workman and I'm in Sydney. Sitting before me is Lane Sainty. Lane, hello. Alice, it is so great to be in a room with you instead of recording this over the phone, which I also love. But being here in person, it's really good. It is really great. And yeah. also, uh, it's also great to be be here with you listening to those, those strange words by Bill Shorten that he made on, on Nova the other day. Question two. Name an author starting with J. Jesus. That'll do. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> he written stuff. The he king of stuff authors. Sure. Parchment no, guy. He was no, a parchment no, guy. No, no, But he's not known as an author. Yes, of course he was. Well, he's yep. known more for other things. I get that. But you know. He was a great public speaker, but he must have taken notes to some of those functions. I think yeah. in the modern era, we well, should still be able to talk about Jesus. Faith's an interesting okay. question, All isn't right. it? We haven't got time for it now, but are you a man of faith, Bill? Uh, do I believe in God? Yes. But I'm certainly voting for marriage equality. What does that God look right like? On. Just in a nutshell. I don't know. He's never actually made himself known is it to a, me. Is it a God in the sky God, Bill? I mean, I'm not m- meaning to sound the way that I can hear myself sounding. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know how to rescue this. No. It's sort of like, uh, I don't think he looks like you. Yeah, good call. Yeah, that conversation took a really bizarre turn. But I think my favourite point of it all was just, Jesus isn't known as an author. <laughs> I mean, I think when we were listening to that, because we were listening to that together, and was Live, it you who it on the radio. Yeah, was it you who immediately said J.K. Rowling? Yes, straight away. Yeah, exactly. Without, like even before he said Jesus, I said J.K. Rowling. Yeah, I mean, you know, J.R. Token. There are lots of yeah. that. You know, he went for Jesus. Jody Picoult. Yeah, yeah. The man obviously has Jesus on the brain. <laughs> Well, but he's voting for the postal survey. He's voting yes. He's voting yes for marriage equality, Not despite like those being other a Christian, Christians? as he was very quick to clarify. It was a bit strange. It was a little bit strange. Interesting. Speaking of the postal survey, Lane, are you aware that there is another postal survey happening in the world right now? What? Alice? What? <laughs> yes. So yeah. in Austria, in Innsbruck... Uh They are holding a postal survey about whether or not they should host the 2026 Winter Olympics. Okay. It looks like they're going to reject it. The postal survey vote in in Austria is coming back no. No Winter Olympics. Why don't they want the Winter Olympics? The economy. Just a bad time. Well, as we've learnt from our own postal survey, Alice, you don't need a good reason to vote no. (laughs) You don't need a good reason to vote yes either. You don't need a good reason to vote However you want. Um, But that is really interesting. I had no idea that there was another postal survey. (laughs) We should compare results at the end. We should. And I wonder how ugly their debate has gotten. (laughs) People who don't take their kids to the Winter Olympics are (laughs) bad parents. parents. (laughs) Shouldn't be allowed to have kids. 
Oh, anyway, moving on. Yes, what is on, on the show this week, Lane? We have an interview with Tiernan Brady, who is one of the leaders of the Yes campaign that will be in our postal survey segment. We've got a jam-packed Fast Five. It has been a really big week in politics with stuff happening kind of all over the place, across to New Zealand, in federal politics, in state politics. And Alice, you did an interview this week as well. Yes, Lane, I sat down this week with the one true libertarian of Parliament House, Uh, Liberal Democrat Senator David Leinhelm Mm -hmm. for a really honest chat about what it is like to horse trade with the government for votes these days. Because as we know, you know, in the lower house, they have a one seat majority, but pretty much they can get they can get through whatever they want with their own with the government's own coalition numbers. But in the Senate, that's not the case. They need nine of the 11 crossbenchers. Every vote counts. And um, it's uh, it's pretty interesting to hear what the senator has to say about how he deals with ministers and and his opinions on how how well he thinks the ministers are going with dealing with the crossbench, because he says, well, you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you kind of flat out demand demand something and say you won't vote in favour of anything if uh, unless they you know bring what you want to the table because then they just will ignore you and they won't talk to you so you kind of need to be having a dialogue with them but at the same time he's of the opinion that maybe some ministers who are from the lower house don't understand how the senate works so it's a mysterious house it is it is so we'll hear what david linehelm has to say in a minute but um yep. let's kick off with the fast five and lane i'm very excited to say this number one guess what we have a result from new zealand <gasps> And the result is Jacindamania. Oh it's the God. result that no one saw coming. Labor leader Jacinda Ardern is the new Prime Minister of New Zealand. And that's right, after nearly four weeks, Lane, four weeks of waiting, Winston Peters finally announced on Thursday afternoon that he uh, has given his support to Labor to form a coalition government. So that means that 37-year-old Jacinda Ardern, who only became leader of New Zealand's Labor Party 81 days ago, is going to be the new Prime Minister of New Zealand. It's going to be in a coalition with New Zealand First who hold the balance of power, but Labor also have a supply deal with the Greens. So you've effectively got three parties there uh, controlling, you know, the next couple of years of of New Zealand politics. It's an honour and a privilege to have the ability as the leader of the New Zealand Labor Party to form a government for all New Zealanders. So just to recap Jacinda Ardern, uh, she was on the podcast when we went to New Zealand uh, a month ago. Indeed. And if you and if you want to get an idea of what kind of Prime Minister she will be and the kind of policies that Labor will be throwing up, uh, I highly recommend going back and having a listen to that Jacinda Mania episode, um, the Jacinda Mania Youthquake episode. <laughs> Indeed. What a time. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so Jacinda Ardern, she is the second youngest PM ever. The youngest, I learned yesterday, was in the 1800s, but she is the youngest woman. Mm-hmm. She's also the third female Prime Minister. And Lane, this sounds like I'm making it up, but I'm definitely not. Yeah. She found out she was Prime Minister at the same time as the rest of New Zealand, live on national television, watching Winston Peters' press conference. <laughs> that is incredible. I mean, just imagine being her, sitting there, watching this <laughs> press conference and thinking... Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm the new Prime Minister. It's like she's the winner of, like, Australia's Got Talent or Australian Idol or something. She finds out they're time. at least there. They're on the same <laughs> show. <laughs> she's watching from home. Oh, man. Yeah, so Winston Peters said he didn't tell Jacinda Ardern or national leader Bill English who he was going to pick. And he also said he didn't even make the decision until about 15 minutes before. He's had four weeks, Lane, 
and it took him till 15 minutes before the very arbitrary sunset deadline that he had given himself to make an announcement. But <laughs> I, I lost my mind at his sunset deadline. It was just um, it seemed so so old worldly or kind of yeah, fantastical, yeah. like yeah. like something Pistols you would see. At dawn. Yeah, like uh, <laughs> something you'd see in a fantasy novel. Like you must return the ring by sunset. <laughs> it was just very funny. This now I know what you're thinking. Didn't national? So that was the party led by Bill English, who were the former government. Didn't they win 10 more seats than Labor at the election? If you are thinking that, you would be correct. And this is the beauty, or problem, depending on who you talk to, Mm -hmm. of the mixed member proportional system that New Zealand have. The magic number needed to form government is 61. National got 56. Labor got 46. The Greens got eight. And New Zealand First got nine. So that gave New Zealand First the balance of power. But effectively, Lane, you can come second in an election and still become Prime Minister. You can. Paul Kelly from the the Australian newspaper was on TV the other night and he said that he thought the mixed member proportional system was absolutely cooked and then added, Germany only introduced it so that they couldn't get a second Hitler. Did he use the phrase absolutely cooked? No, uh, that's mine. Oh, okay. I was like, I just can't imagine <laughs> Paul, Paul, Kelly. Paul Kelly saying, oh, that was Old cooked. Old white man. I don't, <laughs> think he, I don't think he would be across the phrase absolutely cooked. Yes. Anyway, so, Lane, really quickly, mm-hmm. why did Winston Peters in New Zealand first go with Labor and Jacinda Ardern? Well, it was part policy, part ego. The man is 72 and, frankly, he wanted a top job. He wanted to be deputy PM and Labor were willing to give him that. <laughs> Well, I think the biggest issue has been this. We heard and we've uh, read many comments about poverty and the changing condition and the concertering of wealth in fewer and fewer hands. We wish to address that issue. And it's not an old-fashioned sentiment. We did it hugely in past decades in our great history. And we want to be part of doing it again. What is New Zealand First getting out of this deal? Well, they're uh-huh. going to get four cabinet posts. Peters is likely to become deputy PM. Crackdown on foreign ownership of residential and farmland. New Zealand First want a ban, but they'll probably just get a crackdown. Uh, deeper cuts to migration, especially of low-skilled temporary workers. Uh, uh, he wants people to retire at 65 and access publicly funded superannuation. We'll get a better deal for tertiary students. So, of course, Labor promised free uni, but I don't know if it'll be that far. More affordable housing. That's basically how this is going to work. I'm very interested to see Lane, um, what kind of PM Jacinda Ardern will be because she's promised that she won't be a typical leader. She wants generational change. She wants progressive policies. And she's previously joked that if she became PM, she would get her favourite band, which is a Roots band called Fat Freddy's Drop, to play at her swearing in <laughs> at New Zealand Parliament in Wellington. <laughs> but very quickly, I just wanted to say, uh, what does this mean for Australia? Uh, the internet has been uh, aghast with the possibility that we could go to war with New Zealand because (laughs) uh, of the awkward, awkward tensions. Um, Now, just to rewind, in case you've forgotten, a New Zealand uh, Labor politician was involved in the revelations that Barnaby Joyce, Australia's deputy PM, was in fact a secret Kiwi, um, which prompted our Australia's foreign minister, Julie Bishop, to say, quote, I would find it very hard to build trust with those involved in the allegations designed to undermine the government of Australia. And as Jacinda Ardern told us when we met her last month, she wasn't going to hold a grudge. She would work with. She would happily work with the Turnbull government. But she did point out that Julie Bishop had never called her to sort it out. And then Julie Bishop, of course, as soon as Jacinda was was named PM, started getting asked about this, and she said, "Oh, well, it would be very un. It wouldn't be protocol for a foreign minister to call a new a new prime minister." But I think Jacinda Ardern got her own back when, uh, in her first press conference, she mentioned Labor leader Bill Shorten, Australia's Labor leader Bill Shorten, and uh, not Malcolm Turnbull, Australia's prime minister. First, I congratulate Ms Ardern for 
forming government with Winston Peters and the Greens and I congratulate her on being elected Prime Minister of New Zealand. But then just finally, one fun thing I wanted to note, Lane, uh, mm-hmm. is about the rise of the millennial leaders. So Jacinda Ardern is 37, Emmanuel Macron, who's the President of France, is, is 39. Uh, Justine Trudeau is 45, but he was a lot younger when he was uh, elected the Prime Minister of Canada. But also, second mention for Austria in this podcast... Austria has just elected a 31-year-old as its next chancellor, uh, this guy called Sebastian Kurtz. 31. That's so pretty young. this is the time. This is our time. All right, what's number two? Number two. All right, let us go back to Australia and look at federal politics where this week was all about energy, Alice. Energy. I've heard that word so many times this week in Parliament. The government dumped the clean energy target recommended by Chief Scientist Alan Finkel and unveiled its new energy policy designed to make power bills cheaper while still, ostensibly anyway, meeting Australia's clean energy obligations. It imposes two guarantees on energy companies, a reliability guarantee, meaning they'll have to make available a certain amount of dispatchable power at all times, and an emissions guarantee, which will set emissions targets for electricity providers to meet. And, Alice, guess what this whole thing is called? What? The National Energy Guarantee, which spells out N-E-G. That's right, NEG. <laughs> what do you think when you hear the, the phrase NEG? I think of negging, which is when you um, <laughs> you hit on someone by giving them, like, aggressive negative feedback. Yeah, it's like a pickup artist yeah. term where they, like, um, diss a woman to try and to get make her it, to like yeah, them. Yeah. Anyway. Not yeah, it's not it's not good, Lane. <laughs> okay, well, you know, as as do you think that Malcolm Turnbull knows what negging is? I don't know. He didn't know what like normally I would say yes, but he didn't know what Netflix and chill was. Mm. So, and I feel like that's a pretty common internet slang term. So maybe he yeah, doesn't. I don't think Malcolm Turnbull's read the game. Maybe that's an imperfect comparison. Um, anyway, <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> Obviously, the neg has been met with some controversy, as energy is wont to do in Australia. First off, the government says that the neg will save people one hundred and fifteen dollars. Sorry, it's just so funny. <laughs> Keep going. $115 per year from 2020. But the Prime Minister stopped short of guaranteeing that figure. He says it's based on analysis from the Energy Security Board, which is the, the independent board which recommended this policy, but that it hasn't yet been modelled in detail. So they've been subject to some criticisms over whether their claims about this uh, cheapening of power bills is actually going to play out. And then we've got climate change groups who are also not happy. The Climate Council says it's unlikely to reduce pollution and that the NEG could even hold Australia back in terms of it meeting its its international obligations for clean energy and renewables. And the other issue, Alice, is that the government needs to get the states to sign up to it. And they face Labor governments across the country, except for Tasmania and New South Wales. So far, Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews and South Australian Premier Jay Weatherill have absolutely savaged the plan. They've negged the NEG, Alice. They've <laughs> negged the NEG. <laughs> Um, But despite the kind of wave of criticism they've had from uh, the opposition, from premiers, from climate groups, the government insists that the NEG is the right way to go. They've said that the NEG is a pause. And they've also said that this policy is a game changer. So time will tell, Alice. Time will tell. What is number three? (laughs) Sorry, this is the NEG. It's so funny. I don't know why I find it so funny, but I do. Okay, number three is, Lane, do you remember the citizenship changes? 
I do remember them, but please refresh my memory on the details. Well, Lane, in April, Immigration Minister Peter Dutton announced his new policies to uh, toughen up citizenship requirements in Australia. Uh, it, in- it involved an overhaul of the citizenship process, uh, which would increase the waiting period for permanent residents to apply from c- for citizenship from one year to four years. But the most controversial part of it was beefing up the language test. Uh, which would uh, involve a really high level of uh, English language competence needed in order to be qualified to be an Australian citizen. And also they were going intru- they wanted to introduce a test on Australian values, which was basically a test to see how committed to Australia people were. It, they, uh, they first brought it up in April. It sailed through the lower house, but then it got introduced to the Senate and it kind of stalled because it was really obvious they didn't have the numbers. Labor was against it. Greens were against it. The Nick Xenophon team were against it. Darren Hinch were against it. Mm-hmm. So they just didn't have the numbers to get it through. So it's been sitting around at the bottom of the kind of list of government business, which is called the notice paper. So that's a list of things they debate. It's been hanging around on the notice paper for, for months. And it, interestingly enough, You'd think for any other bill, oh, it's had no effect because it hasn't come into law yet. But in actual fact, since they first announced it in April, the Immigration Office have actually changed the way that they've been processing people's citizenship forms. So if you were um, uh, nearly about to hit your one year of permanent residency, uh, the Immigration Office kind of said to people, you need to wait because if these changes go through, you won't become a citizen. So it was actually having like a real life impact on people. Um, before it had even become a law. So what the Greens decided to do was use this uh, really um, uh, obscure procedural motion to put a clock on how long the bill could sit in Parliament without being debated or voted on. And the clock, uh, they put that on uh, last month and it gave the government till close of business on Wednesday night. So the Senate rises um, at about 8 o'clock, but it's 7.20 when... This is kind of like boring nonsense, but like the last 40 minutes of the Senate, they give whatever speeches that they want. They're called like closing speeches. Okay. Anyway, so they had till 7.20 yep. on Wednesday night to um, uh, to vote on it. Even if they'd started a debate, if they'd hit 7.20 and they were still debating, that wouldn't count. They had to vote it, vote on it. So they either had to pass it or the Senate had to dump it. Otherwise, it would get kicked off the notice paper, and uh, basically, which basically means that the Senate has, rejects them, rejects the bill. So... So it was quite funny this week because Peter Dutton was acting as if nothing was wrong and nothing was going on. And then we hit Wednesday night and it, it gets dumped because he doesn't have the numbers. And the only way that he can bring them back now is to uh, reintroduce them uh, or to get the Senate to uh, vote in favour of a motion to kind of bring them back into debate. They don't have the numbers to do that, so he'll have to reintroduce them. And what he currently has, what what he was proposing was a big omnibus bill. So if he cut it up into little bits, there are bits that the Labor Party would agree with. But, like, very interestingly, the Labor Party came out this week and called the citizenship changes an appalling policy, the likes of which we haven't seen since the white Australia policy, which is some very strong words from Tony Burke there and... They really upset Peter Dutton. But Peter Dutton came out and said, look, I'm willing to water down the English language tests and, and you know, try and reconfigure a way to get these things through. So we might see some of the, the tougher reforms watered down and we might see a weaker version of this uh, go through, uh, probably not till next year, though. But Lane, fun fact, the procedural motion they used is actually a really big embarrassment for the government because it's only the second time in 30 years they've lost control of the Senate notice paper. The last time was in 1995, also by uh, in a move led by the Greens, when Green Senator D. Margetts 
had a bill struck from the Senate paper. Right. And what was that bill? It was uh, a bill about the public service. Well, there you go. There you go. Alice, I love these Senate fun facts that What's you just four? give out at any opportunity. It's one of, one of the best things about you. Okay, hey, I could four. talk about the Senate all day. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so number four, Alice, this week Australia got a spot on the UN Human Rights Council. Yeah, woohoo. We woo-hoo. were elected unopposed. Team Australia. <laughs> along with Spain, we were elected to the council unopposed as a representative of the Western European and other states bloc. So this is obviously uh, a big, big win for Australia. There are a few things Foreign Minister Julie Bishop listed as being a priority in terms of our seat on the council. She listed gender equality around the world, rights of Indigenous people, abolishing the death penalty and dealing with international crises in North Korea and Syria. Um, so that was all, you know, the government's obviously very pleased with that, rah, rah, rah. But then, coincidentally, we also had this week a routine hearing in front of the UN Human Rights Committee, which is Ooh. a separate body, in which Australia got kind of roasted for the ways we are not so good with human rights. So the this committee said that Australia has a history of chronic non-compliance with UN communications and that our lack of action is off the charts. And basically, this was the committee criticising Australia for completely ignoring a lot of its directions and decisions when it comes to human rights issues in Australia. So the most prominent example of this is, of course, refugee policy. Mm -hmm. The UN has been deeply critical of Australia's offshore detention centres, the length of time we have kept men and women and children locked up on Manus and Nauru. But the Australian government has not been responsive to these communications. They have said, look, our, our... offshore detention and our immigration regimes is is our business. The committee mentioned in particular the Australian Human Rights Commission's Forgotten Children Report about children Mm. in detention. And uh, they said that Tony Abbott's response to that report was odd, which is probably one of the nicer things the former (laughs) Prime Minister has been called in in recent weeks. Um, But Committee Vice Chair Yuval Shaney said that it is unacceptable for a state to almost routinely fail to implement the views of the committee and, in essence, challenges the expert nature of the committee. So a big slap down to Australia's tendency to just be like, okay, thanks UN, we don't care. Um, and thanks, another, guys. Yeah, thanks for your thoughts. Another interesting little note out of that committee hearing was that one of the members, Sarah Cleveland, criticised the same-sex marriage survey, saying human rights are not to be determined by opinion poll or a popular vote. Now, Lane, we have been elected as a representative of Western Europe and other states. Is this some kind of like devious bid to get us in, like, I know we're in Eurovision, but is this like, is this one of those like ongoing internet jokes of like moving Australia into Europe? What, what is this? I, like if someone asked me, where are you from? Can I now say, well, Western Europe? <laughs> I don't think that's how it works. I think Australia would pretty firmly fall into the and other states category. Of that. But, you know, at yeah, first glance, it doesn't kind of look like an, an Australia group, but that is the, the one that we are part of in terms of the Human Rights Council. Um, mm. So, yeah, big, big week for human rights discussion in Australia. Alice, number five. Well, number five has also got a little bit to do with human rights. Um, we're going to head down south to Victorian Parliament, where they have been debating an assisted dying or euthanasia bill this week. Uh, now, this is huge because it would be the first jurisdiction in Australia to allow euthanasia laws. Uh, and like euthanasia across the world, it is hotly contested here as well. Uh, in a pretty unprecedented move, the uh, Victorian Parliament sat 
all night Thursday night and they're still sitting where it's Friday morning and they're still going. Uh, and But, I mean, this is just to top off the debate that they've been having all week. Now, the bill is supported by the Labor Premier, Daniel Andrews, and he gave a really emotional speech about watching his own father die in palliative care and how it changed his mind on euthanasia. Here's a bit of what he had to say. There's one more story I've promised to tell, but it really is something I've had a lot of difficulty bringing myself to talk about. It's about my father, Bob. He was a big man, but by the end, there wasn't much left of him. But the Deputy Premier, James Molino, tried to block the bill, his own party's bill, but his proposed amendment failed last night. And then, Lane, it was reported that Health Minister Jill Hennessy sent him a text message calling him a see you next Tuesday. (laughs) Yeah. I see you next Tuesday. Quite the text. It is quite the text. Uh, And then former Prime Minister uh, Paul Keating entered the debate saying that it should not be legalised and that euthanasia is an, quote, unacceptable departure in our approach to human existence and that it stands for everything a truly civil society should stand against, which led Tony Abbott to tweet, sometimes disagree with our 24th PM, but congratulate him for being against Victoria's right to kill bill. Uh, I don't know if Tony Abbott's seen Kill Bill. Uh, Probably not. But uh, so, yeah, so Victorian Parliament uh, is still sitting and hashing it out. It hasn't come to a vote yet. So uh, stay tuned to that one because it will be a historic vote either way. If anyone is interested for a little bit of side reading about the euthanasia debate, I Mm. highly recommend the uh, book slash play slash film Last Cab to Darwin. Thanks, Alice. It's okay. I'll check it out. Good. Um, Okay, now it's time for my favourite section. The controversial same-sex marriage postal vote. This plebiscite on same-sex marriage. Postal vote. Postal plebiscite. The postal plebiscite or survey or whatever it is on same-sex marriage. Okay, postal survey time. So just quickly, we did get another update from the ABS this week on how many postal surveys have been returned. Their estimate is now at 67.5 of all eligible voters or 10.8 million Australians being super keen to weigh in on other people's marriages. Uh, But Alice, the bulk of the postal survey update this week is an interview. I sat down with Tiernan Brady, who's the executive director of the Equality Campaign and was also the political director of the successful Yes Vote in the Irish referendum two years ago. Although we should note that Australia's uh, voting turnout has now surpassed the voter turnout in the Irish referendum. Yep. It has. So even though it's not compulsory, Australians are still having a go. Yeah, well, you know, the Irish one wasn't compulsory either. Um, No, but they don't have compulsory voting normally. Yeah. So they're not inclined to vote. Probably. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think I think a lot of people are saying that Australia's high turnout is probably just because we are um, kind of like, you know, mentally engineered to, to, to vote in, in the relevant national poll. Just um, just mad for democracy. Mad for it. Absolutely <laughs> mad for it. Um, anyway, so I sat down with Tian and we talked a bit about what legislation should look like if the yes vote is successful. Some people in the no campaign are calling for a non-detriment clause. We, we speak about that. And we also talked a bit about Uh, his take on double standards in the way both campaigns are treated. Here it is. And just a warning, he has a very thick Irish accent. (laughs) Prepare yourself. Okay, let's roll the date. Shannon Brady, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a million for having us. On Tuesday this week, the Labor Party agreed in its caucus meeting to support the Dean Smith marriage bill, which was, you know, put forward by Dean Smith and and a group of four other Liberal MPs. 
This would provide exemptions for religious ministers and religious organisations. I understand the Equality Campaign is is also supportive of this bill. Will you be lobbying uh, the Greens, the Nick Xenophon team, to come out in support of this legislation? We've always said this is a good bill. Uh, This bill is a good bill for multiple reasons, but most especially because it has followed the proper process. This could have been done without the referendum or the plebiscite and the survey. You know, pick a word (laughs) for what we call it. But, you know... This was a Senate inquiry into how marriage equality can happen uh, and protect religious freedoms. Um, And there was a national consultation and then there were national hearings in the Senate. And then there was cross-party findings. And the bill by the five Liberal MPs and Senators, you know, is based on those cross-party findings. That's good parliamentary practice. You know, so there's a bill that has gone through the proper procedures that's ready to go. I mean, obviously, we'd have liked that to have been passed long before there was any need for to have a survey. But if the survey comes back reflecting the will of the Australian people as thinking everybody should be treated equally by the law, um, then that is the bill we would like to see passed. Uh, and it's great that Labour have come out today. And I think it's very powerful as well because... You know, the fact that Labour have said they're going to support a bill that has been written by five Liberals, you know, sends a really profound message that this actually is above party politics, as it should always have been. You know, there are supporters right across the political spectrum for marriage equality. And it turns out there are lesbian and gay people who vote for every single party and parents of lesbian and gay people who vote for every single party. Uh, and I think it's, it's a really brave and positive move by Labour today that you know they've reached out the hand across the aisle uh, and I think that can only be good for everybody. I, I want to ask you what you think will happen on the yes side of the debate in terms of how people how far people think this bill should go in the other direction. There are some people in the LGBTI community in the yes mm-hmm. campaign who think that the Smith bill goes too far in terms of um, discriminating against LGBTI people and should be paired back. What's your view on that? No, I, I think it strikes the right balance. Uh, I think there's one thing as a community, you know, our journey has told us. Discrimination is a bad idea. Uh, and that's the whole purpose of this entire campaign. Uh, and our job is to change society so that everybody's equal. It is not to replace one form of discrimination with another form of discrimination. If all we're doing is changing the cast but keeping the script the same, that's not victory. Victory for us is when LGBTI people you know, have full and equal standing before the law and that their daily lives and lived experience is one of total respect. Uh, And we don't do that by running around trying to simply defeat or smash the other side. We have to persuade the other side that actually equality is a good idea. Uh, And we already know that's the way it works because, you know, we're polling 65%. You know, we were polling 30% 10 years ago uh, and the 35% that have changed their mind, they were no voters, 10 years ago. Now they're yes voters. And that's because we engaged in persuasion. And we, you know, we have to continue that because getting this over the line as a piece of law is one part of the change we need. What we really need is, you know, the real victory is when the daily lives of everybody feel as they should. Uh, When, you know, LGBTI people become truly, you know, unremarkable. You You can still be fabulous, but I mean, unremarkable in society that it's just, oh yeah, that's fine. We all get on with our lives. So that's a continuous piece of persuasion. Um, and, and I think we have to you know, strike that balance, right? If, you know, should priests be allowed to continue to carry out their religious ceremonies? Yes. Should churches be allowed to? Yes. We've already had this for 40 years with no-fault divorce. We know that it can work. We know that the two institutions, government, uh, 
running civil marriage and the church having its own religious marriage, you know, that that can exist, coexist, and that just needs to continue to coexist. So, you know, I, I'm always conscious we have to share the same country the next day. Uh, and real victory for us is persuading even those who we haven't got over the line in this survey. And we have to keep going at that. And now flipping back over to the, the no side of the debate and the kind of things that they've been calling for, the, the debate around exemptions with commercial service pro- providers, the bakers, the florists, that's been mm. played out a lot. What I want to ask you about is the, this idea of a non-detriment provision that would stop, uh, it would be a sort of protection that means people cannot be uh, punished un- under the law for speaking out in favour of marriage between a man and a woman. But that, that is already the law. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, my impression of the phrase no, no detriment clause is the same as clean coal. I think it's an invented phrase. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a nice cover for something else. You know, <laughs> give me a second, can you? Because I, I want to get this, I want to get this right in my head. It, it, it's, it seems to me that only gay people and their relationships seem to pose a threat to some people. And of course, it doesn't. It's people getting on with their lives. You know, and that doesn't pose a threat to anybody. Uh, and I think there's a problem here when people try to talk about no detriment clauses, you know, just if you don't like gay people getting married. You know, I mean, that's gay exceptionalism, and that's really worrying. So, I mean, there are a lot of religious rules, for example, around marriage, which aren't adhered to by the general population of Australia. Most people perhaps have had sex before marriage. Most people probably have used contraception before marriage. And many people have been divorced and are getting remarried. And there has never once been a discussion about having no detriment clauses uh, for people against divorcees getting remarried or people being refused marriages because, you know, they used contraception. Uh, but now, just because LGBTI Australians may be in a position where finally they're allowed to get married the same as everyone else, we hear about these no-detriment clauses. I mean, I, I think when you shine a torch on them, you know, they'll just melt away because I, I don't think they stand up to scrutiny. I mean, I, I think we know the day that marriage equality happens, all that's going to happen is a few more people are going to get married. And that's profoundly important for LGBTI people. Um, but for most of the world, the world will rumble on, you know, uh, and, you know, any form or any attempt to unravel existing anti-discrimination law or any attempt to say there should be, oh, there's exceptions where the existing discrimination law now I don't have to adhere to simply because I believe I shouldn't have to observe this law. Answer, that's the slippery slope uh, of unwinding all of our anti-discrimination laws in the country. And that'll be an really bad move for all of society. So you you oppose a, a non-detriment clause for, for those reasons. Do you think there's well, any chance it would get up in, in this parliament? I don't understand what it is. I have yet to have anyone explain to me what a no-detriment clause is. In the same way, the whole way through this campaign, we have heard no campaigners profess their concern for religious freedoms, but yet have refused to cite a single example of what they would put in a bill to protect people. So I think a lot of this is smoke and mirrors, you know, and whataboutery. You know, so, you know, the entire campaign that we've watched from the no side is red herring after red herring. Uh, the public, I believe, have seen through that. I hope and, and believe that the public will vote yes 
to marriage equality in Australia. Uh, and what cannot happen is that that then becomes an opportunity for people to unravel our anti-discrimination laws that have served this country well, not just LGBTI people, but all of us well. Uh, and I think, you know, it's a dangerous, slippery slope, ironically, uh, that some people on the conservative side of this argument are putting forward that this is their moment to really dismantle anti-discrimination law. Uh, and I, I think, you know, we have to do everything we can to make sure that, that never happens. Okay. One of the most common phrases in this survey so far has been the words on both sides. <laughs> There's been nastiness on both sides. There's been ugly debate on both sides. It's, a, it's one of the favourites mm. in the media. What, how do you feel when you hear that phrase, on both sides? I think there's a challenge in this. There, there is truth in this to a degree. Um, I think every campaign, is, you know, since God was a boy or God was a girl, uh, has had idiots on both sides. Uh, they're not part of either campaign, but they do damaging things. You know, we've always said this has to be a positive, respectful campaign because, A, everybody has to wake up and share the same country together, but also because lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and intersex people have to wake up and live in the society, and the tone we set matters. Uh, there have been people on the fringe of uh, the yes side and the no side you know, who have done profoundly offensive things, um, but they're not helpful. And, the, and they're also not reflective of what's happened in Australia. Yeah, I, I think one of the challenges in this is you know, we don't want to do the Australian people a disservice. They've actually had by and large, a really respectful campaign that was kitchen table conversations, that was people knocking doors in Tamworth or, you know, Aubrey Wodonga, you know, and mo almost all of those were incredibly positive experiences. Uh, and I think sometimes, you know, there can be a focus at a national level of the media to find the problem because the problem becomes the interesting story. And I understand that. In a way, it's a reflection of the fact that marriage equality is such a straightforward issue. There's only so much you can write about it, you know, especially over a campaign that's 12 weeks long. You know, okay, what do I say about marriage equality now um, when it is such a simple issue? Um, I think one of the things that is probably, I find a little bit irksome, for the want of a better word, is I tend to think that sometimes the no side are given a bit of a fool's pardon in the campaign that there's almost an element of the, not, the you know, not just the media, but all of us, you know, hearing some of the things that they say about gay people or some of the things they've done in this campaign and just kind of shrug their shoulders and go, ah, that's only the boys. So Tony Abbott deliberately misleads people about political correctness and everyone kind of ah, shrugs their shoulders. Uh, you know, a former minister in the government, Matt Canavan, gets up and tells LGBTI people to grow a spine and to stop being flowers. I mean, you know, I, I don't know how insulting people can be, but this is, you know, this is a member of, of Parliament uh, who also, by the way, campaigns by around, runs around the country saying, you know, you can't trust politicians, which is a really ironic line from a politician. Uh, but you know, those type of insulting things and damaging things, uh, uh, and I do feel sometimes we kind of shrug our shoulders and go. Well, we expect them to behave like that. Therefore, we don't hold them to the same level of scrutiny as we do other people that are involved in the debate. And I think LGBTI people have found that frustrating the whole way through. And I think it's a phenomenal tribute to LGBTI people that even though they see that every day, 
even though they see, you know, the provocation and the baiting that has gone on from the no side and the deliberate misleading, uh, and they can see that that's not held to the same standard uh, of scrutiny, they've still shown incredible dignity in the face of a national conversation about their worth. They have shown a steely discipline where, you know, there's a million LGBTI people out there, plus their mums and dads, brothers and sisters, and, and just supporters. They've shown yeah, incredible discipline in the face of, you know, a real onslaught of abuse over the last couple of months, you know, and, and they have just kept smiling and kept shaking hands and kept telling their stories. And I think if hopefully we win, which, you know, uh, we'll know in a few weeks' time, it will be because of the steely determination and dignity of all of those people in the face of, you know, some pretty tough comments. So going back to what you said about Matt Canavan for a second, his, his comment that, that people should grow a spine, yeah. it, you know, that there was some blowback against that, like, mm-hmm. you know, in the media, yep. among spokespeople. Are you saying that you feel like if you had said the same thing, for instance, about uh, supporters of the no vote who feel maligned during this process that you would have been treated differently? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I, I think, you know, I, I think in fairness, I think, you know, there was ink by the barrel for when... Uh, someone who purported to be on the yes side done something stupid um and i'm not convinced that 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 was the case on the other side and you know there's nothing we can do about that i mean we're in the middle of a campaign i believe we're winning the campaign it would be easy for me to you know sit here and and you know say you know we've been treated unfairly i i i don't necessarily think that's the case i think we've been held to a high standard i think that's important you think, I think it, it, we should by the be. media? Are you saying that you think the media has erred here in its treatment of each campaign? I think we've been held to a high standard, and I think that's right. I think sometimes the no side's got a fool's pardon. I think sometimes they've done things and people have just shrugged their shoulders and went, ah, sure, that's the no side. And, uh, you know, I do think that has happened. I mean, I mean, there's no point in... Com- there, there, and we shouldn't complain. You know, this is part of the challenge. Campaigning on a, nat- for a national vote is tough. You've got to get out there and make your case, and people have to fill their papers. Um, and, you know, happy, respectful conversations about an issue that's incredibly straightforward and simple. You know, there's only so many articles you can write about that. Um, so, I mean... I, I'm tr- I, I try to think back over the campaign and I, I mean, we made a very conscious decision that we didn't want this to be a negative experience insofar as is possible. So first of all, we worked very hard with organizations to provide supports for people uh, throughout this process because, you know, this is a hard process. But we also decided not to, you know, front, you know, put out there how difficult it was every day. This had to be a positive unifying campaign. This still needs to be a positive unifying campaign for the country. It can't be a campaign of complaining. Um, And there's no doubt LGBTI people have a hard time. There's no doubt terrible things have been said, but we've chose not to issue a daily press release of all the horrendous things that have been said um, because I don't think it would serve the country well. Um, And... Did you yeah. want to at points? I oh. mean, when the No campaign came out with um, that ad about the Facebook comments on their on their page, did you think, well, maybe we should put out that that negative press release? No, I, I didn't. I didn't want to. I felt frustrated watching it because you know there's there's a mind blowing level of dishonesty in that ad. Um, when I look at our own internal, just our own internal Twitter 
uh, feeds and what's sent to us on emails and what's sent to us, said to us on Facebook. And that's before we get what LGBTI people right across the country are hearing being said about them every day. You know, and, you know, uh, the irony is perhaps one of, the, one, one of the groups that knows better than anyone in the country what it's like to be bullied or verbally harassed or physically harassed are LGBTI people. Uh, and this kind of reverse psychology of putting themselves out as a marginalized victim or uh, as having been bullied, you know, there's no sense and there's no truth to it um, when we know the opposite is true. But we can't have this race to the bottom of who has been the most victimized. You know, Australia is a great country with a great attitude towards LGBTI people. You know, they support equality. And I believe that'll be shown in the results. And, you know, so this isn't a question about you know, midnight in Australia, it's the opposite of that. This is, you know, positive, confident, inclusive country that we can celebrate. And, and I think hopefully we'll be in a position to do that in three weeks. And I think one of the challenges, Irish, Irish answers can be long. I think one of the challenges on this one, sorry, is, you know, it says a lot about the No campaign that they have, you know, all of their ads, uh, including the bullying one, not just have been misleading, which of course they have, but they've been very, you know, dark and negative. This has been a relentlessly negative campaign from the no side, uh, whilst we have done our best to make this a relentlessly positive, inclusive, unifying campaign from the yes side, because we know it has to be. Uh, and I actually think that the Australian people have seen that, and I think the Australian people will vote for which type of Australia they want, the one where, you know, that it is, you know, there's, this dark negative place, which isn't true, or the one that's embracing of everybody. Tian and Brady, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. That was Tian and Brady from the Yes campaign. And as ever, we'll have more on the postal survey next week. And hopefully we'll have more information about what kind of ballots they're getting back because we found out this week that uh, there is, of course, the graffiti, uh, flowers were mentioned, a lot of flowers rolling in on ballot forms. Um, but also the ABS said they're getting blank surveys back yeah yeah getting blank surveys i mean i suppose that's a, a, protest, a protest vote of vote. some kind or someone who's just made a terrible mistake but hopefully they'll include it in the, the statistics well i think i think it would just be counted in the the oh, invalid yeah. batch i mean we'll get a yes no invalid count mm. so but yeah no I, I would also like to know the psychology behind these people sending in blank forms okay lane well we're not going to do bin juice this week but we are doing
question time in a move that Labor, Labor's Graham Barrett has described as the ultimate power play to enter the room at a time when you'll get the maximum attention from everyone who's already seated. Yeah. And also, you give the snappers that clear shot of you entering. Pose with the camera. Vogue, Vogue. Vogue, Vogue. Gallery whispers. Vogue. 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 <laughs> Alice. Yes. Labor held a marriage equality fundraiser in Sydney a few weeks ago with Labor bigwigs like Penny Wong and Tanya Blibersek and Sam Pastiari was there too. (laughs) (laughs) And as people left, they were handed gift bags with Labor membership forms and stickers in them. Membership forms. So the marriage equality fundraiser was trying to recruit people to the Labour Party, which is a bit opportunistic, I think. (laughs) I just enjoyed your roast of Sam (laughs) Pestiari. He was also (laughs) handing out forms and stickers. Gallery whispers. (laughs) Gallery whispers. Stop handing out forms all the time. (laughs) Hey, Lane. Speaking of Labour MPs, guess who don't sue? (gasps) Which Labour MP spent 15 minutes on the phone to the parliamentary switchboard trying to find out what BuzzFeed's landline phone number was. <laughs> Lane, we do not have a landline <laughs> phone number because unlike Malcolm Turnbull with his fax machines, we are innovative and agile and we also have no printer. Gallery was <laughs> And Alice, I hear that the, the MP in question actually has your personal mobile number. Yes. But still spent several minutes trying to find a landline number yes. which doesn't exist <laughs> called me to complain about it. gallery whispers gallery whispers alice we've talked before about animals getting into parliament house yes joe hockey wasn't allowed to bring his puppy in when he was treasurer sad but julia killard brought in her dog to the bmo when she was bm snuck it in But Alice, animals do come in for special events from time to time. I want that beat on Tanya (laughs) Blippersack. But we found out this week there were some scientists here for the BM's Science Awards that there is a two-week approval process to get animals to be let into the building so they wouldn't let in tiny, tiny bearded dragons little lizards, Alice, they wouldn't let them into the parliament because they couldn't meet the two-week process planning time. And so the politicians had to go and meet the tiny, tiny lizards outside. (laughs) (laughs) It was very cute. It was for the science awards. We have a metal detector, but not a lizard detector. Gallery whispers. Gallery (laughs) whispers. Gallery (laughs) whispers. Oh, boy, Lane. <laughs> I think that's enough whispers <laughs> for at least two weeks. Uh, now, it's been a chaotic week in the Senate. We talked before about uh, the unusual procedural motions that have been used to, to dump the citizenship reforms. But um, I also thought it was worth noting Nick Xenophon gave a speech on Wednesday night that he, he started by saying, this could be my last speech. And uh, it kind of shocked everyone into realising that, yeah, if there is... Uh, if there is a result from the High Court, then he might not come back. He just might just resign and then never come back to, to Canberra. Mm-hmm. Uh, baller move. 
So I wanted to, to take some time this week to, to talk to a senator about just how negotiations and things are going uh, in the Senate at the moment. Um, so Liberal Democrat Senator David Lionhelm, he's the one true libertarian in Australian Parliament, sat down for me with a chat about uh, what the government needs to do to get his vote on the controversial proposal to drug test people on welfare. He's come up with a list of five demands. He wants alcohol added to the drugs that are tested. He wants to increase the threshold for a positive test. So if you have alcohol uh, in your system or if you have drugs in your system, you shouldn't automatically lose your benefits. He also wants to remove uh, the charge for people if they do test positive. He wants to increase the waiting time between tests from whenever the government feels like to six months. And he also wants to remove the requirement for getting treatment if you do test positive. But he's also really frank about what it is like in the current political climate to horse trade with the government for votes. And you know what? Mm. He, uh, he doesn't have some very nice things to say about some of the ministers that he has to deal with <laughs> oh on a regular basis. Now, I just wanted to note here that uh, the senator was drinking a cup of tea and eating a muesli bar during this interview, and uh, he throws out some pretty strong language. So uh, I, I love that warning. <laughs> that, A, the senator was drinking tea and eating a muesli bar, and also he swears a lot. <laughs> um, okay, so here is Alice with Senator David Lanehelm. <laughs> Okay, so Senator, you've got five amendments here for the drug testing bill. Uh, the first one adds alcohol uh, to the list of drugs that we that will be tested. So that's uh, urine tested, hair tested, saliva tested, I believe. Um, why why do you want alcohol added to the to the list? Well, <clears throat> I was trying to think of what the motivation for this would be, and would, the only thing that makes sense. If, if you leave aside <coughs> the stuff that isn't worth isn't worth contemplating, which is just general disapproval, which is not a basis for legislation, um, it has to be impairment um, f- uh, to the extent that it affects somebody's employability. So, if someone is on on um, unemployment benefits of some kind, um, the only relevance of drugs would be does that stop you getting a job so that you're no longer um, uh, off, off welfare, off benefits? Um, the absolute top of the list drug that contributes to unemployability is alcohol. And if you leave that off, then what are you doing it for? It didn't make any sense. Yeah, and, and it's in your in the speech that you're going to give, it's, it seems to kind of imply a reasonable person test. So a majority of Australians use alcohol yeah. and could potentially turn up to work still over 0.00. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But this is a test about eligibility or remaining eligible for welfare, though, um, and particularly for uh, people who are on unemployment benefits, New Start. Um, so um, the idea is that um, if they're doing something which inhibits their ability to get a job, um, and therefore get off New Start and save the taxpayers money, um, then that might be, not necessarily, but that might be a reason for nudging them, poking them, giving them an incentive to uh, change what they do. So if they're, if they're smoking drug, uh, if they're taking drugs, including alcohol, and that inhibits their employability, um, that's relevant to the taxpayers, and they're the people that I mainly care about. Um, uh, so uh, it seemed to me that um, um, 
if if this is going to have if this legislation is going to have any productive outcome, um, then it has to be with with the idea of giving people a reason to to get a job, and therefore things that inhibit them from getting a job um, um, should be the the criteria that we apply. Um, that's why. Um, uh, that's why I added alcohol to it. I'm dubious about marijuana and ecstasy um, being there. I, I've seen no serious evidence that either of them stop a person from getting a job. But um, it's possible, I suppose, that, you know, at the extreme use that you might get that. But I, it, to remove them from, from the legislation would have been you know, a forlorn hope. They wouldn't have, the government wouldn't have gone with it. But adding alcohol to uh, to the list is is you know hard to argue against it on objective grounds. And then you've you've said here that you would like to put in a threshold limit. So mm, yeah. uh, and the government can you want the government to create that limit in yep. the regulation yep. for the, uh, illegal drugs, but for alcohol you want it to be zero point zero eight. I just was curious about how you got to that number, given that. <coughs> It's zero point zero five is the is the limit for driving a car. Used to be point, uh, it used to be point oh eight, in um, in a number of states driving a car, and then they all standardised at point oh five. Um, after a few years, in a number of countries around the world, point oh eight is is the standard. Um, so it's not an internationally accepted thing that point oh five is is the go. And, uh, and there is quite good evidence that um, uh, 0.05 is, there is a degree of impairment for driving, um, and that's why it got settled on 0.05, but it's, it's still relatively modest, the impairment at 0.05. Um, the argument was that driving, you, still, you don't want even that amount of impairment, but that same test doesn't apply to getting a job. You would need a substantial a reasonably higher level of impairment um, before that would necessarily make you unemployable and so therefore that's why I went for the higher standard. It's it's not the same as driving a car. So does, does this mean that you think that if people, if it's about employability, yeah. does this mean you think that people should be able to work, to turn up to work with 0.08 in their system? Um, well, uh, not that would depend a lot on the job. Yeah. Um, some jobs that would be fine. Um, some jobs that wouldn't be fine to have anywhere near that. What we're talking about, though, is employability uh, to get a job. Yeah. So if you turn up for a job interview and you're pissed as a newt, you're not going to get the job. So what's what's pissed as a newt? How how pissed do you got to be before an employer would say, no, well, you're you're too pissed. I'm not going to give you a job. 0.05, there's a very good chance that you could um, go to a job interview and, and do fine and get the job. 0.08, there's less chance that, that you would be able to do that. That's the point. One of the other provisions that you want is uh, to take out how much, to take out charging people uh, who test positive for the test and also putting in the six month wait uh, between testings. Why, why are they uh, included in your amendments? Yeah, there's a there's an assumption that there's some fault involved in having a positive test, or and in particular having two positive tests, and I wanted to um, uh, remove that. Um, <coughs> so that you know, charging somebody for um, 
for a positive test or two positive tests seemed to me to be saying, well, you're a very naughty boy for having smoked dope um, twice, um, six months apart, so now we're going to make you pay for the second test. Um, that it, it's, um, it's a disapproval-based uh, approach. It's not, a, uh, it's not a, an approach based on any particular positive public uh, outcome. So uh, um, I think it was just adding insult to injury. First of all, I, you know, putting people or giving people some or having some sort of negative consequence from testing positive for dope or ecstasy, um, uh, highly questionable whether there's any practical value in that at all anyway, and then making people pay for it, it's just adding insult to injury. There are some drugs that uh, are perhaps more serious where the consequences uh, could be more serious, but even then, paying for the test seemed to me to be um, rather vindictive um, in reality. And, and I, that's why I also have uh, introduced amendments that would, um, um, that will, uh, if they're passed, um, remove this idea that if you have two positive drug tests, you, you're potentially some sort of dope head and you've got to go off to a shrink and, and be analysed for, uh, for your problem. It's a load of crap. Um, you know, there's, um, there's uh, no public benefit in that at all. There's already a self-exclusion uh, option for people who are addicted to drugs um, <coughs> so that um, they can remain eligible for New Start. This idea that you're going to catch them by, by having two positive tests is fanciful. And uh, you, could, you could easily have uh, two joints in your life, one the day before you had your first test and one the day before you had your second test, and some, some um, uh, psychologist is going to ask you what you think of your mother um, um, at public expense. Mm. You know, it's, it's idiotic. So I, I was prepared, I am prepared to tolerate the the, uh, the welfare card for people who dress a test positive. Uh, I, you know, some people have uh, reservations about that, but the people who who mostly are concerned about that don't view welfare as charity, which is what I do. I view welfare as charity, char charity with the government acting as intermediary between the taxpayers and and the recipients. If you are doing private charity, if, if you, Alice, were um, helping somebody out with some private charity and you said, well, I'm giving you some money, I don't want you to go and spend that on dope, um, and if you do, I won't give you money anymore, no one would think any less of you for doing that. So having the government sitting in the middle between you as the taxpayer and the recipient and saying the same thing, uh, you know, I don't have a problem with that. But uh, uh, you, you need to... You know, you need a rational reason for, for doing that because it's not going to be free to uh, to run a policy like that. So, um, uh, and I, I, I absolutely regard uh, welfare as charity and putting conditions on it um, is okay as long as they're, they're rational. So to say to people, well, if you're taking drugs, if you're testing positive for drugs, um, you can be put on these, these cards that's not going to kill you. I mean, at the end of the day, all that means is you can't go and spend the money on um, on the, the, the sort of the blacklist things. Most people wouldn't anyway, and uh, I don't see that as a big uh, as a big imposition. 
I, same with the uh, the indigenous communities where they're rolling it out more. I don't I don't see that as a big imposition. It's when they assume that you've got a drug problem because you had two positive tests. Um, that's when it gets ridiculous because clearly most people who smoke dope, you know, on a regular basis, they're still perfectly employable. In fact, you can take opium or heroin and live on it um, and still live a normal life and and you know, have a job and all that sort of stuff. Not necessarily any impairment on that on them either. Um, people used to do it before they prohibited them um, uh, quite regularly. And uh, the biggest problem with uh, with a lot of um, drug takers is getting the money to pay for their drugs. They get into all sorts of trouble as a result of that. But the actual drug taking, particularly some of the drugs, even the highly addictive ones. Um, not that serious. Ice is different. Ice causes psychological problems, and uh, and so you know, clearly it would be good if we could pick them up and somehow or other help them to get off it. And I've you know, but again, um, two positive ice tests shouldn't mean you're assumed to be some kind of uh, um, mental case. And uh, and and a shrink sort of asks you, as I said, how you get on with your mother. And uh, how are negotiations going with the government? Uh, you met with Christian Porter a, a few weeks ago. Well, I Chris, this is I don't know Christian Porter very well. Um, I thought I'd made my concerns pretty plain, but I gather uh, he is assuming that he has my vote. I have heard rumours to that effect. So clearly there is a bit of a communication mismatch. So sooner or later he will find out. <laughs> Unless he accepts my amendments, he hasn't got my vote. Okay. And considering that the Xenophon team have said that they won't be uh, voting for it, uh, there's obviously some room for you to negotiate here. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Although just getting my vote doesn't make up for the three votes of Xenophon. Mm. So I guess it depends who else is in in or out. But uh, yes, this is not unusual when the, the bills are contested that um, there's a lot of manoeuvring goes on. Um, the uh, ministers in the Senate are accustomed to it. Uh, they know how to deal with it. The ministers in the House uh, are variable, shall we say. Some of them are not too bad. Some of them leave a lot to be desired. How would you rate Porter so far? Well, I've had one meeting with him on this. Um, I thought I made my views clear that I thought that this was um, based on disapproval rather than, you know, good public policy. Um, would appear, based on the, the chatter, the corridor chatter, that um, uh, he wasn't paying close attention to what I said. So, so far, not that much progress. And just quickly, I noticed that Greg Hunt said the other day that while he's Health Minister, that e-cigarettes would never be allowed in mm. Australia. What do you think about that? Well, that that's actually a, a rather disturbing um, because I've uh, uh, I've been pushing the government pretty hard on this subject. I thought I was making progress, um, but uh, I'm now starting to wonder whether I'm being played for a fool, and that that I don't like that. So we'll see where that goes. Um, I, there's some things are happening which uh, I hope will 
create a little a bit of momentum for change on that front. New Zealand has just recently approved e-cigarettes. Most of the rest of the world is moving forward on them. The reality is that if we don't approve e-cigarettes, people will die from smoking-related diseases in Australia. When e-cigarette is one chemical, nicotine, which is addictive but not particularly harmful otherwise. When you smoke tobacco, you consume thousands of chemicals and they're the ones that cause um, lung cancer and emphysema and heart disease and all that sort of stuff, not the nicotine. So for Australia to essentially deny smokers the option of moving to a much safer alternative is, um, I, I think, uh, very poor policy. And uh, um, I won't be backward about making that, that known. And um, you'd be amazed how often the government needs my vote. And so, you know, one, if they don't do it now, they'll do it in due course. Um, they, will, they will have to have a little think about how much they, how many smokers they want to kill before they see sense. Would you be ever willing to put your foot down Jackie Lambie style and say, well, I'm just vote against you until you listen to me? That doesn't help. Yeah. Um, because then I just assume there's no point even talking to you. Yeah. If they don't have any, any chance of getting your vote under any circumstances, then, uh, you know, you've got no negotiating ability. Um, the best is to um, vote with them sometimes, um, allow them to negotiate with you so that they can get your vote sometimes, so they keep trying. And so... And, and the senators, the ministers in the, in the Senate are quite happy to deal with me on that basis. They say, um, yeah, of course you want something for your vote. Um, so, you know, let's have a talk about what that can be. Um, so I have no trouble with dealing with them on that basis. They're perfectly happy to do that. The Prime Minister himself is also not uncomfortable with that approach. Um, in fact, um, you might remember my liberty offsets that I talked about during the ABCC negotiations. That was a difficult time. I didn't like the ABCC bill much, although it's objective, I didn't object to. But, you know, there were some very coercive elements to it. And that's when I introduced the Liberty Offsets concept to them. So we've, we've kept that going on several bits of legislation since then. Malcolm Turnbull thinks that's a good idea because um, we both get an outcome that we can live with. Sometimes I'm not prepared to deal on... Uh, on a piece of legislation. This one, for example, Barnaby's Bank, um, is, uh, is a crock from beginning to end. It's a crock. I couldn't possibly vote for it. So I didn't really, I wasn't that interested in liberty offsets on that because I couldn't vote for it under any circumstances. But there are other bills that have got bits that are good, bits that are bad, or the objective is good. It's just that I think they're a bit scratchy about the way they go about it. And, you know, in the big scheme of things, I think, OK, can I get something that's of equal or greater value if I go, if I go ahead on and vote for it? And, um, you know, it regularly happens that that is the case. Uh, E-cigarettes is on my list of liberty offsets. And uh, so each time they come knocking on my door wanting my vote, out comes the list and there's e-cigarettes on it. So sooner or later Greg Hunt will uh, either won't be health minister or he'll be told by his cabinet it may be what you want but we need David's vote on this issue so you know either way it looks bleak for Greg one way or another you will uh, you will 
stop killing Australians uh, by forcing them to keep smoking. Senator, thanks so much for talking with me. That was Liberal Democrat Senator David Linehelm. Now, Lane, that's all we've got time for this week, but um, I feel like I need to just point out to the people at home that were cheering on the little podcast that could this week. Um, last night, we did not win the best podcast at the Publish Awards. We did not. We lost to Modern Babies, which we found out is a podcast about scientists that, like, develop babies. I don't know. It sounds It sounds like... Great, but you know, at the same time, <laughs> we're, we're joking. <laughs> good, good, you yeah, know, good, good on them. Good yes, form. we're very happy for them. <laughs> as long as we didn't lose to Mamma Mia, we actually don't care. Um, but you know what? <laughs> we may not have won, but you know who won an award? It's our producer. It's Nick Ray, guys. Nick Ray. Woo! Yes, Nick Ray. Nick Ray, Nick Ray won Nick Ray. an award for best use of short form video. Nick Ray, congratulations. You won an award for uh, this great video. It's called um, The Privilege Walk. Uh, as was noted at the award ceremony last night, made on a budget of less than $1,000 and replicated in a lot of countries around the world. Nicholas Ray, congratulations. How do you feel? Oh, the mic just fell. Yeah, it's good. Thanks, girls. Great. <laughs> also on the winner's list, one Mark Stefano, one Journalist of the Year. Of course, he lives in England now, so I humbly accepted the award on his behalf. And, and Alice, a picture of you is now up on the Mumbrella website under Mark Winner, DeStefano. Young Journalist of the Year, Mark Stefano, and it's Alice there with the award. It's an absolute honour. And also, uh, BuzzFeed did win um, Website of the Year, which is pretty cool. Yes. Um, so, yeah, sorry, guys. Sorry, guys. Um, we apologise for losing. <laughs> we will do better in the next year? I think really think that's all we have time for we, this week. We are so over time. <laughs> um, I want to say a big thank you to Nick. Nick, congratulations again. I want to thank Josh Taylor, Nicola Harvey, Richard, James, Peter Holmes, and the whole pod team here at BuzzFeed. A big thank you to Rode Microphones for supporting the podcast. You can go to buzzfeed.com slash is it on. You can subscribe on iTunes, your favourite podcasting app, leave a rating and review. The embed is fixed, so you should be able to listen on all platforms now. If you can't hit me up, I will uh, fix it for you. Now, we'll be back with a very special episode next week. It is Senate Estimates, and I know a lot of people are excited about that. But, Lane, mm-hmm. we will be joined, and this is kind of extraordinary, by a very special guest, former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, K. Rudd, the crud. We'll be, <laughs> the on. Crud. We'll be on the podcast next week. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. <laughs> He'll be joining us on Is It On? And, of course, he's, you know... The one of the original is it honors in a, in he Australian is. politics. He is. Yeah. I think just I can't incredible. wait to tell him. All I can't. About I can't it. wait to ask him. Is it on? <laughs> Kevin, is it on again? <laughs> Kevin, will you launch another tilt to become the leader of the Labor Party? No, no, UN. Is it on in the yeah. UN? Is Kevin? it on in the UN? Well, I want his take on domestic polls as well. But yeah, well, we can we've ask. We've got both. a lot of questions. We can ask yeah, both. We've got a lot of questions. Uh, so yeah, you can hit us up. I am at Workman Alice. She's at Lane Sainty on the the tweeters. And finally, Alice, yeah. got to ask, is it on? Lane, great question. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> you know where it is on. Where? In the Victorian Greens? <laughs> no, we've solved that problem. <laughs> okay. We've already met the leader. Lane, keep up. That was last week. You know where it is on, Lane? Where? In bloody Queensland. <gasps> Queensland. Queensland. Uh, email went out late Thursday night mm-hmm. saying, all Labor Party office staff have to work seven-day rosters. There is a big meeting of field organisers on Friday afternoon. 
Everyone has been called on deck. The ads have been printed. They're on bus stops. The billboard space has been bought. The call flutes are ready. Queensland is about to announce it's going to the polls. I spoke to someone in in Queensland politics last night and they said the only thing that is kind of holding the Premier back is uh, she wanted to get this one thing on donation uh, laws that she wanted to finalise before they went to the polls. But, I mean, she could do that today and then call, or she could do it in the next week and and then call. Uh, But um, very interestingly, Lane, Mm -hmm. this is the last election that they can call before they go to fixed terms. So this is the last time a Queensland politician can control when to throw an election. So, obviously, she wants to throw it at the right time so she can, you know, wedge herself into a position where uh, it's the most ideal for her. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is interesting. And yep. I certainly can't wait for Queensland votes. It'll yeah. be a lot of fun covering it on this podcast. Maybe we'll go. Maybe we'll go up to Queensland. Maybe. Who can say? Yeah. If our editors are listening. Hello. I mean, right, our, so our editors do listen because they edit this podcast. Yeah. Let I'd, us know if we can go to Queensland. I'd really like to go. Um, by chance, I am going to the Gold Coast next week. Mm. We should go see the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah, that's what I was before thinking. Before it completely dies. Like right, I've never been right at the top. Mm. I'm in a Townsville. Mm. That was all right. But like, I'd like to go right at the top. Yeah. Well, let's pitch it. Yeah. We're pitching it now. Guys, can we go to, can we go to Queensland? <laughs> all right. I, I, Alice, I think that is all you we have time for. we should go to Woomba. Yeah, we should go to Toowoomba. That'd be really interesting. Mm. Yeah. Nick, do you want to come to Toowoomba? <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Nick said no. I think, I think that's it. That's all yep. we got time for. Thanks all right. for listening, guys. Bye. We'll be back next week. Bye. Bye-bye.